One of the black marks on the history of Christianity happened in the years leading up to the Second World War as Hitler and the Nazi Party were rising to power in Germany. The economic devastation of World War I, a rising sense of German nationalism, had affected the church and had led some of the clergy to become deeply sympathetic to the Nazis. Rather than looking to Jesus Christ for salvation and hope, they began to look instead towards Adolf Hitler as the answer to their nation's many problems. In retrospect, it was almost an unbelievable moment of compromise as several top theologians in Germany joined hands with the Nazis and led their students and their churches into an ideology that was the very embodiment of Antichrist. And as a result of these startling developments, the Protestant church in Germany was divided into two different parties. On the one side was the German Christians who supported Hitler. On the other side were the confessing churches who actively opposed him and chose to suffer imprisonment, exile, and even death. Among those who took this bold stand against evil were Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth, the latter of whom drafted a famous uh, document called the Barman Declaration. This document became a rallying point for the faithful churches of Germany. It states in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ is the only Lord of the church and that the church is subordinate to the word of God and not to the dictates of the state. This was a very dangerous and risky move to make at the time, but it was absolutely necessary and many of the faithful pastors who signed that document paid the price. Brothers and sisters, as this historical illustration shows us, there are times in this life when God's people will need to choose either to declare our allegiance to Christ and His Word or else to forsake the Word and follow the path of least resistance. Thousands of Christians throughout the centuries have taken a courageous stand on the Word, and this morning as we turn once again to the book of Daniel and continue our study, we're going to see yet another example of this kind of unwavering courage and conviction. And so if you brought your Bible with you today, and I hope that you did, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. This morning we're going to read one of the best known stories in the Old Testament, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are threatened with death in the fiery furnace. Daniel 3, I'd ask you to listen carefully as I read now from the inspired and inerrant Word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. He ordered some of his mighty men in the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their outer garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, O true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own their god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. 
Last week in chapter 2, we looked at the sovereignty of God over all of history, and this morning as we move into chapter 3, we are going to see, first of all, two images that stand in opposition to one another, secondly, three men who stand alone, and thirdly, four men who stand together in the flames. Two images in opposition, three men standing alone, and four men standing together in the flames. And so with God's help, that's where we're heading this morning. We begin our study in verses 1 to 7 with two images that stand in opposition to each other, the image of God and the image of man. Although the first few chapters of the book of Daniel contain stories that can be read and understood independently of one another, we've got to keep in mind that each one of these stories builds on the ones that have come before and helps to reinforce the overarching theme of this book, which is the meticulous sovereignty of God. A few weeks ago in chapter 1, we were introduced to the main characters in this unfolding drama, a tyrannical king named Nebuchadnezzar and four young men who are taken forcibly from their homes and transported into the land of Babylon. Chapter 1 shows us how these young men rose to positions of great influence in Babylon and how Daniel, in particular, was given the ability to interpret dreams through the grace and the power of God. And then moving from chapter 1 into chapter 2, we get a glimpse into the mysterious providence of God as he uses the king's own strategy of indoctrination to equip these men for missionary service and as he gives Daniel an opportunity to minister directly to the king by interpreting the dream. These chapters are not disconnected from one another, and the key link from chapter 2 and chapter 3 is the interpretation of the dream that we considered together last week. You remember, I hope, from last time that King Nebuchadnezzar saw a great statue in his dream that was made from a variety of different metals and materials. There was a head that was made of gold and a torso made of silver, thighs that were made of bronze, and legs and feet that were made of iron and clay. This dream was a God-given glimpse into the future. It was a reminder the kingdoms and the empires of this world will come and go with the passing of time, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. Now for Daniel and the other Jewish exiles, this dream would have been a tremendous encouragement because it showed that God was still at work in the exile. He was still there in the midst of their suffering, and one day the Babylonian regime would be brought to nothing. But for Nebuchadnezzar, this same dream served as a warning from the Lord, a reminder that the kingdom and the empire he was building for his own glory would eventually pass away just like the chaff that the wind blows. In that famous dream, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were portrayed as the head of gold. But now as we turn the page and come into chapter 3, we see that the king has built a statue entirely out of gold, some 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide at the base. There's no question that the king's statue was inspired by the king's dream. But you'll notice, I hope, a major difference between the two. Instead of building this statue according to the pattern revealed in the dream, the king instead built the statue entirely of gold. And this is a direct contradiction to the message that God had revealed. Through this dream, God has been warning Nebuchadnezzar about the sin of pride. He has even been giving this king an opportunity to repent. But now the king is trying to counteract the will of God by building a statue completely out of gold. This, of course, is intended to be a public declaration. The Babylonian Empire is eternal and that the king's power will never fade away no matter what the God of Israel says. 
Now we're brought to see that although King Nebuchadnezzar gives lip service to the God of Daniel in the previous chapter, he is every bit as far away from the Lord as he ever was. A prideful, rebellious man who refuses to believe that God is in charge. This prideful attitude of Nebuchadnezzar is reinforced throughout the chapter with the repetition of a little phrase that we first encountered back in chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, Daniel worships the Lord as the one who sets up kings. But now in chapter 3, that same little verb, set up, is repeated by the author no less than nine times. You'll notice now in the context of chapter 3, it is not God who's setting up kings. It's Nebuchadnezzar who's setting up himself through this image. He is now foolishly attempting to do through his own human ability what only a sovereign God is able to do, to set up kings and to take them out. This golden statue is the linkage between chapter 2 and 3, and with the construction of this idol on the Babylonian plain, a contest has been initiated between two different images, the image of man as represented by the statue, and the image of God as represented by the three Jewish men who refused to bow. It's a contrast between two different images, a contrast between two cities and two kingdoms, and the question sitting before us now in the text is which one of these two images will prevail? Will the image of God bow down before the image of man, or will the image of man submit to the image of God? That's the essence of the spiritual contest here. It's the question this chapter is going to answer. You know, for many of us who grew up uh, hearing this story at bedtime and in Sunday school, we probably tend to focus very narrowly on the plight that these three young men faced in their personal lives. But now that we zoom out a little bit, if we see the bigger picture, we're brought to realize that the stakes are much higher here than we initially thought. This is not merely a contest between three Jewish men and a pagan king. This is a contest between two vastly different kingdoms and the glory of God Almighty is at stake. The conflict between God's image and man's image that we see here in chapter 3 is not something that is unique to the book of Daniel. This is a struggle that permeates the entire biblical narrative from beginning to end. Genesis 1.27, we read in the Scripture that God created the human race in His own image and that we human beings were put here on this planet to visibly and tangibly reflect the glory of the triune God who created us. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, we hear the hiss of the serpent as he tempts Adam and Eve to disobey the Creator with the promise that they themselves will become like God, that they will take His place. Brothers and sisters, the original sin that took place in the Garden of Eden was an effort on the part of the enemy to deny the true image of God and to put a rival image in its place to usurp God's glory and to ascribe that glory back to man. So the struggle between the images begins way back in the book of Genesis and that same struggle continues to our present day. You know, back in the Old Testament times, it was common for pagan religions and nations to make idols out of metal or wood or stone. Essentially, they were images of the false gods before which the people could bow down and worship. But in Exodus chapter 20, we read in the Ten Commandments that the Lord prohibited uh, any graven images to be made. Have a listen to these familiar words from the moral law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The first two of the Ten Commandments prohibit the making of idols and graven images. This is something that distinguished the Jewish nation from all of their pagan neighbors. God strictly forbade the Jews to depict him through images. The reason for this commandment is really quite simple. It's because God had already placed his image on earth in the men and the women he created. God didn't need a graven image because he'd already created a means by which his glory would be displayed. Now in this whole discussion of the divine image, we need to acknowledge that the image of God has been terribly twisted and distorted as a result of the fall so that now we human beings no longer accurately display the image. But equally important here is to acknowledge that God through the Holy Spirit is actively restoring and and renewing that image in us so that we as chosen people reflect His glory to the nations and that we not act like the nations in stealing that glory for ourselves. God created King Nebuchadnezzar for the same reason He created all people, to display His supreme glory. But in His depraved state, this pagan king was on a mission to steal God's glory. That's why he created the statue in the first place. That's why he commanded the people of Babylon to bow down to it. Nebuchadnezzar is rebelling against the Creator. And once again on the plain of Babylon, we hear the hiss of the same serpent. Well, this massive statue, as we've seen, is of great spiritual significance, but so too is the location where the statue was built. For several centuries earlier, on this exact same Babylonian plain, another monument was set up by the enemies of God. You can read about that, that first structure back in Genesis 9. It was a massive tower that was intended to help men reach heaven through their own self-effort and not through the grace and mercy of God. The Tower of Babel that once stood on this Babylonian plain united the human race in rebellion towards the Creator. And that is why the Lord came down in judgment and confounded their languages. Babel, the arrogance of the peoples of earth, uh, was dealt with by the Lord. He scattered them. But here in Daniel 3, we see an attempt on the part of Nebuchadnezzar to reunite the nations under the image of of man. A few minutes ago when I read through the Scripture passage, you may have noticed all of the repetition, the words and the phrases and the names, almost to the point of tedium and annoyance. These are very repetitive verses in God's Word, but I'd like to suggest to you this morning the repetition in this passage is absolutely intentional, both in mocking the -the over-the-top narcissism of Nebuchadnezzar, but also in, in driving home a couple key theological points. Look back in your Bible at verse 4 and verse 7, and you'll notice that the inspired author repeats the fact that peoples, nations, and languages are gathered together around the king's statue. Later on, if you flip to that passage we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, you'll notice the exact same phrases used, peoples, nations, and languages. Now this fact is stated, It's repeated a second time because the author wants us to observe the worship in Babylon was international in its scope, just as it was at the Tower of Babel. At that time, the Lord scattered the nations in order to keep them from uniting in rebellion, but now Nebuchadnezzar is trying to undo God's judgment by bringing the nations back together. 
King of Babylon is on a mission to unite the world under the image of man. But the good news in all of this is that God has an even greater plan for the nations and that God's plan can never be thwarted. God scattered the nations in a stunning act of judgment, but later on in history, he appeared to a man named Abraham, and he told Abraham, through your family, all nations of the earth will be blessed. In the fullness of time, God fulfilled that glorious promise by sending his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law in order to redeem uh, those under the law. And unlike you and me, who can only dimly reflect the divine image as a result of our sin, we're told in the book of Hebrews, the Lord Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. And Paul tells us in in Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God and that in Him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Friends, in our fallen human state, we cannot perfectly reflect God's glory. But the Lord Jesus is the sinless bearer of the divine image. And through the blood of His cross, He has chosen to gather the nations together once again, not in rebellion against God, but in genuine worship and adoration of God. Satan has a plan to rally the nations under the image of man, but God is right now gathering the nations together under the image of His Son. He is restoring the image in His elect so that His glory might fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This plan to unite the nations through the Gospel is the fulfillment of what we read in Psalm chapter 2 where the Father says to the Son, Ask of Me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is that the promise is being fulfilled right now in the church of Jesus Christ. A company of worshipers from every tongue and tribe and nation whose purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, in verses 1-7 to of our text, we see two images standing in opposition. Now as we move to the next part of the narrative, we see a picture of three men standing alone. The king's instruction to all of the gathered officials is perfectly clear. O peoples, nations, and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. No, the vast majority of the people who were gathered together on the plane that day would have had no problem at all, no moral dilemma bowing down to the king's statue. After all, when you're a convinced polytheist, what's one more God to add to the collection? Most of the dignitaries gathered that day would not have thought twice about bowing down, but it seems that Nebuchadnezzar was wise enough to know that the Jewish exiles might cause some trouble, and that's why he issues a threat alongside his command. You see, unlike the Babylonians who believed in many different gods and goddesses, the Jewish nation was founded on the truth that there is only one true God and that this true and living God is not willing to put up with competition. Monotheism is at the root of biblical theology and this conviction that there is only one true and living God is stated most clearly and forcefully in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jewish exiles were monotheists who believed in one God, and Nebuchadnezzar foresaw the possibility that these men of faith might embarrass him, that they might ruin the dedication of his statue by abstaining from worship. 
And so even before the orchestra starts to play, the king points towards the furnace that was used for smelting gold and he tells the scrupulous Jews that they could either bow down or burn up. It was a sobering choice to say the least. Well, sure enough, in verse 7, the music begins to play. We are told that all of the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue. First glance, it seems that the king's threat has accomplished its purpose. As we look out over the plain, we see the Babylonian polytheist willingly bowing down. We see the Jewish monotheist perhaps begrudgingly bowing down. Everything seems to be going according to plan. The event is shaping up to be a great success. But then we get to verse 8. The rain starts to fall on Nebuchadnezzar's parade. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Although most of the Jewish officials who were required to be present on that day chose idol worship instead of death, we're told in verse 12 that three of the Jewish exiles woke up that morning with stiff and uncooperative knees. Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, for they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, for these Babylonian informants, the the refusal of the young men to obey the king was not a disappointment at all. Rather, this was a dream come true. These high-ranking advisors and astrologers had been shown up by Daniel in the matter of the dream. They had been, uh, they were deeply jealous of the exalted position of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were probably seen as foreigners. Now at last long, the per- at long last, the perfect opportunity has come to take revenge and they are not going to let it slip by. The accusation that's brought against these men is malicious. It's opportunistic, but it's also true and very effective. For we're told in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar instantly flew into a rage and he commanded that the young men be brought to him. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the instruments to fall down and worship the image I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Well, the heat is on now. The three young men are given a second chance to save their skin. And I can imagine how tempting it must have been in that moment just to bow down to the statue, just to go through the outward motions of worship, just to chalk everything up to a necessary means of survival. The temptation these guys face must have been incredible. What's even more incredible is the answer they give to the king in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but for me, these are some of the most inspiring and soul-stirring words in the entire Word of God. And every time I read these words, my heart cries out to God that in His grace, He would grant me the same kind of courage and resolve to stand boldly for Christ. Christian friends, you 
don't know what the future holds for us in this country. Very often, we, wor- we worry about possibilities that are totally beyond our control. Like most of you, I can see the storm clouds looming on the horizon, but to be honest, I have no idea what the future holds for us in terms of revival or persecution. One thing I do know, however, is that the Lord will always give His people the grace that is needed to stand firm on the truth and to persevere in that truth. History has shown that to be the case. Personal experience has shown it to be the case. Most importantly, the Bible declares it to be true. I was reminded in studying this passage of Jesus' words in Matthew 10 where He said to His disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious of how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then a few verses later, these words, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What a curse it is. What a blight it is on the Christian faith to fear men more than we fear God. What a blight to love our lives, to love our personal comforts more than we love the glory of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are probably 18 or 20 years old when these events take place. They are living in the Old Covenant era before the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit, and yet they love not their lives even unto death. level, the example of these three young men models beautifully how we as Christians are to relate to the governing authorities that God has sovereignly placed over us. Christians of all people should be the most law-abiding and respectful citizens that exist, praying for those who are in authority over us as the Bible commands, giving honor where honor is due, recognizing that our governing authorities are acting as God's servant, even if they themselves don't understand or believe that. The Apostle Paul teaches us about the relationship between church and state in Romans 13. A couple years ago, I preached a short series on this very important theme. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, we must recognize that our government, however flawed and imperfect it may be, is an expression of God's common grace in restraining evil and maintaining law and order. No government in the history of human civilization has been perfect, but to the degree that our elected and appointed officials accomplish their God-ordained purposes, we are required to honor and obey them and to submit to them as an act of worship to God. That's why I say that Christians should be the most law-abiding and respectful citizens in the land, and I hope that we are. But all of this being stated and affirmed this morning, whenever the civil authority requires us to act in a way that violates God's Word or prevents us from acting in a way that the Word of God commands, our marching orders are very clear. We ought to obey God rather than men. 
And so sad to say, there are times in this broken world when we Christians will have no choice but to engage in civil disobedience if we are to remain faithful to God's word. That was true for the Protestant church in Nazi Germany. It was true of these three young men in Babylon. It is true for you and me today. If and when the government tries to coerce us or to force us into violating the clear teaching of Scripture, we as the people of God have no choice but to disregard that instruction and to suffer the consequences, whatever they might be. Now, in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this meant a willingness to be thrown alive into a burning, fiery furnace. Only God knows what it might mean for us as we continue in our generation to stand firm on the truth in a culture and society that is constantly moving in the opposite direction. One of the reasons why God put this story in the Bible is to show us what it looks like to honor Him in a society that hates Him and rejects Him. But even beyond that, this story reminds us that standing firm on God's truth will often be a very lonely place to stand can imagine on that frightful day in Babylon how disappointed these godly men must have been to look around that statue and to see all of their childhood friends from Israel who had come with them into Babylon down on their faces right alongside the pagans, violating God's law in order to fit in with the crowd. Friends, I don't think I need to tell you this morning, it will be a lonely road when we as the people of God refuse to bow down to the idols that our culture and society have set up. And if things don't change, I have no doubt that the road ahead will be littered with the bodies of those who have compromised and fallen away from the true faith. But I also know and I believe this morning, God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Words of that old hymn are still an encouragement to me today. Fear not, I am with you. O be not dismayed. For I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee. I'll cause thee to stand upheld by my gracious omnipotent hand. You know, when we read a familiar Bible story like this one, it's natural for us as Christians to identify with the good guys in the story. And so far, my application of this passage has led us in that direction. I've encouraged us to put ourselves in the place of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and identify our situation with their situation. But before we move any further into these verses, I want to shift gears a bit and suggest that very often in the daily grind of life, we Christians are a lot more like King Nebuchadnezzar than, we fit, than we'd like to admit. Nebuchadnezzar, as we've already seen, was a self-centered man who tried to put himself in the rightful place of God. Sometimes the truth of the matter is that you and I can be like that, even though we're Christians, even though we belong to the Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting here that we Christians are tempted to make golden images and bow down to them, but I am suggesting that every one of us, without exception, struggles with a sinful and idolatrous heart. You see, friends, idolatry doesn't just mean bowing down to a wooden statue like the pagans did in the Old Testament. In a broader sense, idolatry happens whenever we put something in God's rightful place and then look to that thing for meaning and purpose and salvation instead of looking to Christ. You know, very often the idols that you and I struggle with are not bad things. Most of the time they are good things that we turn into ultimate things. Work, for example, is a good gift from God. But if our job or our ministry becomes the ultimate source of identity and joy, it has become an idol in our life. 
Marriage is a good gift from God. But if your spousal relationship becomes more precious to you than your relationship with Christ, it has become an idol. Money is a good, good gift and we need to make money to survive. But if the pursuit of money and possessions becomes the ultimate ambition in life, we are bowing before an idol. Food and pleasure are good things. But if the purpose of your life here on earth is to eat and drink and be merry, you can be sure idolatry has taken root. Great Genevan reformer John Kelvin once said, the human heart is an idol-making factory, and he was 100% right. In our fallen and sinful nature, we Christians are constantly battling the temptation to dethrone the Lord from His rightful place and to put something else in His spot. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not walk away from the Word this morning with self-righteous smugness as we pat ourselves on the back and look down our noses at this pagan king. Let's realize there is a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in each and every one of us. There is a constant gravitation towards idolatry. And because of that, there is a constant need for spiritual iconoclasm, smashing those idols to bits through the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we as Christians fight idolatry in our lives? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, we tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Well, so far in our text this morning, we've seen two images standing in opposition. We've seen three men standing alone. And now thirdly and finally, in the concluding verses, we see four men standing together in the flames. By opposing the king, by refusing to bow down to this statue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have provoked the full brunt of his fury, which is seen in the fact that he commands the furnace to be heated to its maximum capacity. These three young guys have placed their faith in God. They are determined to do what is right, no matter what the result. Their courageous answer to the king back in verses 16 to 18 shows that they believed that God was able to rescue them, but it also reveals their humble submission to the sovereignty of God. Without a doubt, my three favorite words in the entire chapter are found in verse 18. They're the words, but if not. If you have a pen, you should underline those words in your Bible. If you don't have a pen, make sure you remember them and take them to heart. You know, it's common today to hear Christians speak as though we can make all kinds of demands on God, that we can tell God exactly what He ought to do in our lives. Just name whatever blessing you want, name whatever outcome you desire in your life, then claim it by faith and wait for God to give you your wish, just like a genie in the bottle. Many Christians buy into this heretical notion that we can manipulate God if we would only muster up enough faith to twist His arm. The words of these three young men blow the false theology right out of the water. Take note, friends, the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not in a guarantee of deliverance from the fire. Their faith was in the sovereign God who is sovereign over all things, including the death of His saints. You know, truth be told, these men didn't know whether God would save them or not. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter that much because their hope wasn't rooted in living a long life. Their hope wasn't rooted in the things of this world. That's why Nebuchadnezzar got so angry with them. Nothing that he could possibly say to them would be able to change their minds because their minds were already made up. 
And with those three little words, but if not, these three Jewish slaves defeated the king of Babylon. They showed him that their ultimate allegiance was not to the Babylonian empire. It was to the kingdom of God. You know, friends, when we resolve in our hearts and lives to honor God and obey his word, there will always be a price to pay. In this case, the price was steep. It was being thrown alive into a fiery furnace. The unwavering courage of these men in the face of martyrdom is almost breathtaking. But even more remarkable here is the miracle that followed within the furnace as the flames did not touch them or even leave the residue of smoke on their clothing. God sovereignly extended the lives of His servants. He sovereignly chose to prolong their ministry in Babylon. By the way, this was a visible fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to the exiles where he writes in chapter 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. By sparing the lives of His faithful servants, God was revealing Himself as the Savior. And He was foreshadowing an even greater salvation that was yet to come. You know, I think the most fascinating and certainly the most unusual part of this story is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar threw three men into the flames, but then saw four men walking around in the furnace. Whereas the king puts it in verse 24, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Although King Nebuchadnezzar interprets this incredible sight through the lens of his own pagan religion, it ought not to be a mystery who the fourth man was in those flames. It was not a son of the gods. It was the son of God. This was nothing less than an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Here we have in these verses the very presence of God with His people in the midst of tribulation. And what a wonderful reminder, brothers and sisters, that even though God never promises to remove His people from tribulation, He never promises to protect His people from the grim reality of persecution and suffering in this world, we can know that the Lord will always be with us in our trials. He will walk with us through the flames. He will give us the grace that is needed to endure. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the last words that the Lord Jesus spoke should be a tremendous encouragement for all of us. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the pre-incarnate Christ walked with His servants during their great moment of tribulation. But when our Lord came into this world as the sinless Son of God, He came into the world knowing full well that He would one day pass through the furnace of God's wrath all alone with no one to help Him. Jesus came to this earth in order to live the sinless life that you and I could never live and then to go to Calvary's cross and pay the sin debt that you and I could never repay. And on that cross 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus willingly walked into the fiery furnace of divine justice. He suffered the torment of hell on the cross in the place of all of God's elect people so that we who believe in Him would never have to descend into that furnace for all of eternity. 
Now, if that's not good news this morning, brothers and sisters, I don't know what is. Jesus went into the furnace all alone so that you and I who believe would never have to go there. And if today you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you too will be saved. Amen.